You're listening to Software Unscripted. I'm your host, Richard Feldman. On today's episode, I'm talking to Scott Veloshin, author of the book Domain Modeling Made Functional and the website F-Sharp for Fun and Profit. We talk about his experiences using F-Sharp in production, the delta between functional and imperative at a language level, and the minimal essence of functional programming. Software Unscripted is sponsored by my employer, No Red Ink. No Red Ink makes software for English teachers, and we're on a mission to help all students harness the power of the written word. We're also hiring, so the next time you're thinking about a change, take a look at noredinc.com slash jobs. And now, F-Sharp in production. Okay, Scott, thank you so much for joining me. Thanks very much for having me on. So, so you're the author of F-Sharp for frontandprofit.com. And uh, something I've always wondered is, I know we've had people on the podcast before who've talked about like Elm and Haskell and Clojure and, and Elixir, but we haven't had anyone talk about F-Sharp like in production, like uh, using F-Sharp sort of uh, in the real world, as they say, not for hobby projects, but you know, you know, for work. And I'm curious, like, what's your experience? Like, I, I know that you're plugged into the F-Sharp, you know, functional programming community. What can you tell me about it? Right. Well, what's interesting is I think people think of functional programming in general as a very kind of academic thing. And I think the functional programs themselves don't necessarily help with that sometimes. <laughs> I don't know but what I, you're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> you know, but I think, I think, you know, F sharp is definitely on the pragmatic side of that, especially because it sits on top of a, a good framework like .NET, just like Clojure does and, and Scala and so on. So it's nice because um, it's not as purist as something like Haskell, but it's very pragmatic. It's a, it, you can piggyback on the massive .NET libraries. So it's a great language just kind of getting stuff done. And I mean, this, one example I can give you is I was working at a company where we mostly use, we actually use C Sharp. It was a C Sharp company. We had a project to integrate with the um, the post office, the mail, the a kind of mailing system for parcels and stuff. And we had a deadline. It was like, you know, it's like Christmas. And we had a deadline of getting it done in three weeks. Nice, and nice, we classic. Like, yeah, <laughs> calculate, you know, how to calculate the parcel packet, the weights of the parcel, and figure out what the best delivery method was, and all this kind of stuff. Very pragmatic, real problem. And so I basically to deal with my boss. <laughs> I said, if you let me write this in F sharp and leave me alone for three weeks, I'll have it done in the deadline. Whoa. <laughs> <laughs> wow. <laughs> Putting your money where your mouth is. I yeah, like it. Okay. exactly. So, and, and it worked. And um, that was, uh, oh, probably uh, maybe eight years ago, maybe 10 years ago. I'm losing track of the time now. So <laughs> I think the last couple of years has just gone by in a, in a flash. So I think it was probably almost 10 years ago now. Anyway, everyone was very happy. The advantage of that is I could integrate. They already, you know, these... Um, service already had a .NET API designed for C-sharp, and I could just like import that and use it with F-sharp with pretty much no changes. So it made it very easy. And, you know, all the documentation, I mean, they didn't, you know, if you were using Haskell or something, you wouldn't have been able to do that. Or even something like OCaml. I mean, the problem with some of the minority F uh, the functional languages, they're just, you know, there's not a lot of support. But if you can use the JVM or you can use .NET, you can really piggyback on the stuff that's already out there. So that was good. And that was a good example of being completely pragmatic. I mean, it wasn't the most, the whole point was, is a very, everything was very impure. You're talking to a third party API, you're writing to a database, you know, we're reading records from our database, calculating, going to a third party API, making calls, then writing back to our database. It's all very business stuff. It wasn't, you know, I, I mean, I wasn't using monads or anything weird. It was just purely read and write, classic kind of thing that you do as a scripting language for like, you know, Python or something. And it was, um, yeah, it worked out fantastic. And it's pretty bug-free. I was actually very impressed. I mean, it was one of my first F-sharp projects, and I'd heard that if you write the code, you know, if you compile, it works. And the classic thing that people say, and actually it did. It pretty much worked uh, first time. 
and as far as I know, is relatively you know there's always a few little minor bugs, but it pretty much works out of the box, and it kept it didn't need any maintenance for about a year until the until the third. But of course, the the main, like all these things, it's not that the code breaks; it's that the third party API changes or the business climate change. They need to add you know next day shipping or something, and all of, and they still have to add features to the thing. But um, the actual code is pretty robust and reliable. But I mean, I would say that's actually a good example for doing this because it was an independent project, which is outside of the mainstream. I, I mean, personally, I would not recommend taking an existing project that everyone's using C Sharp, everyone's using Java, and then you know, adding this extra language in and forcing people to use that because I think that's just a recipe for disaster. So in terms of how, how you get people to buy into using functional programming and how you get people to have a good experience with it, I think you have to be, you know, easy in and, you know, with with lots of education, with lots of support. And um, I have seen people where they just try and, you know, one person rewrites a whole chunk of code in Haskell or Clojure or whatever, and then they go away and nobody really has bought into it. And that ends up being rewritten back because people hate it. And it's like, so I would say, yeah, I would recommend to people be very careful about pushing it down people's throats. I mean, we all think it's a good idea. We Obviously, we wouldn't be doing it, but there's a good way of getting people into it and there's a bad way of getting people into it. Yeah, this is interesting because this is something like that. That story you just told really it sounds familiar to me. This seems to be a common thread and really kind of an, an underappreciated aspect of functional programming languages. I mean, it seems like there's varying degrees of sort of a, amount you can buy into functional programming, and the smallest degree is just you take the existing language, the existing frameworks, the existing libraries. Everything's the same, except you're just going to try and do less mutation and fewer side effects and just sort of, it's just a code organization thing. And then there's like one step further of like buy-in is you start using some sort of library, like in JavaScript, this would be like a Ramda.js or something like that. And you're like, okay, we're going to commit to changing our dependencies to, to do a more functional style. And then one level above that is like some sort of functional first framework, maybe where you have like an effect system or something like that, that now like sort of permeates your code. And then finally, you get all the way to language. And when you get to language, something that I, I didn't appreciate until honestly, a, a couple of years ago, when we started adopting Haskell on the back end at No Red Inc, is uh, how valuable it is to have a really nice story around incremental adoption. And I would have thought that on the server, this would be sort of natural because like, oh, we, you know, you can just split off a new, a new service. But it turns out that's still a pretty coarse grained chunk of of a boundary like just saying that the smallest possible unit and it's not okay it's not the absolute smallest i mean if you want you could like spin up a microservice and like talk to it from your in our case a rails monolith you know that you're, you're trying to move away from but then you, you there's still all this overhead around like well okay now it's it's not just a function call it's a bunch of network requests and stuff and it's nice and clean if you can do it just at like the entry point boundary and you can say like okay the load balance is just going to send traffic to this route over to this server instead of that server and then everything's pretty neat and tidy but something that's happened to us on a pretty regular basis is like well we have this project and really the amount of change that we need to make to the ruby code is like several nested function calls deep and it's pretty small and simple and we don't really want to spin up a whole new service just to do that and like have to deal with its own time and monitoring and all this stuff and you know there's 
There's a whole microservices digression there, but not interested in going down that rabbit hole. That's not what we, how we want to architect our servers. But if we want to adopt Haskell, that's something that we're sort of pushed in that direction. Whereas it sounds like with your project, and this is something I've also heard about, Clojure projects and Scala projects on the JVM side, certainly it's what we did with Elm is, is incremental adoption. It sounds like the fact that you were able to take an existing working code base and just be like at the function level. You're just like, I just want to start calling some functions in this other language. And I can just do that wherever in the code base without having to do any infrastructure work was kind of critical to your success. Is that fair to say? Yeah, I think so. I do think it's building. I mean, there's more to learning a new thing than just learning a new language. I mean, in my experience, that learning a new language is actually normally not the hardest thing. It's learning the framework and the library. You know, so for example, C Sharp and Java are kind of very similar languages, right? So if I know C Sharp, I can probably pick up Java really quickly and vice versa. But the Java library and the .NET library are actually quite different in lots of ways. Oh, are they? I didn't yeah. know that. Yeah. So if I, if you're a Java expert and you're coming to .NET, you know, it's going to take you a while to get familiar with all the library calls and so on. And similarly, you know, Ruby and Python and stuff. I mean, each each language has its whole library. You have to learn the Python libraries or the Ruby libraries. And so even though you might learn the language pretty quick, the language is often pretty easy to learn, like Ruby and Python, not particularly hard languages. But to become competent in them, you have to learn this whole other thing. And, um, you know, and you, you need to be, in order to be confident, you actually need to sort of memorize big chunks of the library. You need to memorize all the collection classes. You need to memorize all the string operations, you know, and the file. I mean, not memorize, but you have to have, a, you know, have them at your fingertips. So you're not always checking the documentation every time you want to loop through a list or something, you know. And um, if you already know that, you know, if you're a C-sharp programmer, you already know the .NET library and F-sharp is, is pretty straightforward. And if you're a Java, you know, if you're a Java programmer going to, you know, you already know the Java libraries and you can use Clojure or Scala without too much trouble. You know, it's still different. You still have to use them in a different kind of way. So there's still a bit of a learning curve there. But I do think, yeah, piggybacking on an existing framework does make it easier. On the hand, the flip side, though, is that people who are already familiar with it, they say, why should I learn something new? I'm already very good at this. <laughs> Especially, I mean, like C Sharp has a lot of functional stuff already. It's, got, it's had Lambdas forever, and it's got you know, a lot of nice features. And a lot of C Sharp people say, well, you know, I can do all this in C Sharp. Why do I need to use F Sharp? <laughs> and I'm sure that Java people say, now with new, new versions of Java, for a long time, Java was kind of very unchanging. But in the last few, you know, there's been a lot of activity now on the Java side and they've had lambdas and all this stuff. It's like, why do I need to use Scala? Why do I need to use Kotlin or whatever? It's like Java does this now. So it's that's, so that's a whole different argument. But I think from a pragmatic point of view, pick, using a standard framework is, is good, yeah. What's your perspective on that? I mean, obviously, you're a big fan of F-sharp. If someone said, hey, Scott, you got to do this next project in C-sharp, you're not allowed to use F-sharp for whatever reason. And let's say you, you know, don't quit or whatever. You're just like, okay, I'll, I'll do it. So, I mean, how do you feel about that? What do you feel that you're missing out on, if anything, by, yeah? You know? That's the kind of thing. It's, it's the classic thing. When you're immersed in a particular ecosystem, you're not aware. It's like fish don't know about water, right? You, you, you're not even aware of the other way. So I think, you know, if you're coming from a traditional sort of imperative language, you really, it's very hard for people to think that there are other even ways of doing this. So, if it's, I mean, a, a simple example is, you know, union types, discriminated unions or some types, whatever. They don't exist in most languages, but once you start using them, like in you know in Elm or Haskell or or F Sharp, whatever, they're so important and so useful. And it's like if you don't have them, I mean, you can sort of emulate them with subclasses and so on. But 
you know, once you've used them, it's really hard to go back to not having them. <laughs> and, and, and things like having immutability by default. Like, again, you, in, in C Sharp and Java, you can make things immutable, but it's always a lot of effort. It's not the default behavior of the language. And in functional languages, it's exactly the opposite. The default is things for immutable. And you can, if you really, you know, you can make things mutable if you need to in general, but, but it's, an effort, it's not the standard way of doing it. It's considered a code smell to, be, to have mutable data in general, you know. And um, so it's just the different defaults. So, yeah, you can totally, you know, in theory, of course, any programming language is equivalent to any other one. But in practice, yeah, it's nice when you've got all these things at your fingertips and it's just a few lines of code. The other thing about what I like about, you know, F sharp, but also, you know, most functional languages, they're very concise. You know, a, a union, you know, you can do things like three or four lines of codes. And then in a more traditional language like C sharp Java, it's like 20 lines of code or 30 lines of code to do the same thing. And also, if I was, I mean, I'm saying I could easily rant about this. Uh, the other thing, if I was working, if I was doing a C sharp project, I would be very conscious of people who had come after me and they need to maintain my code. I mean, I'm assuming that I wouldn't maintain the code. So I would actually write code in a way that other people could maintain. And I would not necessarily assume that everyone understands all the complicated functional stuff. So I probably would not use, if I was doing error handling, for example, I would not use a result or either type. I would have, I would probably throw exceptions because other people that understand my code, they would need to understand everything about how that works. So I couldn't just, if I put it in there, they would like, they would say, what is this result type? What is this either type? Why, and why are you using, what is bind? What is map? Why are you doing these things? And it's like, well, if you're a functional programmer, these things, I mean, even something like, a good example is fold. So fold is a standard operation on collections in, in functional languages. And it's like, it's just, it's, you'd expect that any functional program would understand what fold did because it's, and map, you know, you'd understand these are standard operations. Now, I would not expect that a C-sharp or Java program would understand how to use folds. I mean, it's actually in the C-sharp libraries, but very, very few people use it. Most people just loop through a list that, you know, that iterate, they just do four each in a list, you know, because that's the standard way of doing it. So if I was writing code that I wanted other people to maintain, I would loop through a list. I wouldn't use folds because I don't think anyone else would understand what I was talking about. Okay, so this is this is like in the scenario where you're told you have to use C-sharp instead of F-sharp. And the implicitly, we're assuming that the team is all imperative programmers. Right. So let's say, let's let's change the hypothetical and say that maybe this is a team full of C-sharp programmers. And again, for some strange reason, you, you <laughs> must use C-sharp, but but everybody's okay with the functional style. They're, they're fine with your using either. But in that case, I would. Yeah, in that case, sometimes you might say that, you yeah, you want to use C-sharp for various reasons. But if everyone's a, a, like a, a heavy-duty functional programmer, then using monads and all that stuff, yeah, fine. Go ahead. I'd I'd use all that stuff, and then you end up with weird looking. But I mean, I've seen people do that. For example, in JavaScript. <laughs> oh you know, sure, I've done that in JavaScript. Exactly. I mean, I've seen <laughs> and, and, you, and you you look at this code, and the average JavaScript program would say, "What is even going on here?" And if you're a functional person, you say, "Well, it's obvious. They're just chaining a thing through using you know." It's like, yeah, but most people would you know like I mean, you're just using a free monad here to do this. It's like the average you know, non-functional program would, would not understand why, why even what you're doing and why you're doing it. And that just because it's the pattern language, there's just like with OO, there's sort of patterns. And in functional program, we have patterns in the same way, in the sense that there's something that you'd recognize. If you're an experienced person, you'd recognize these techniques and you say, yes, I know why you're doing it. I can recognize this technique by looking at it. 
And I know why you're doing this because, you know, I'm experienced in doing it. But I, I think it's unfair to other people to come after that and, and you know, not that. But, yeah, if you have a team where they're all experts, yeah, go for it. But in that case, the question is why are they using C-sharp rather than F-sharp? And if you're all, you know, or Haskell or something. So, but, yeah. Well, and, and so I do wonder about that. Like, let's say that you're on this team and you're doing uh, functional style C-sharp. What do you think is the the delta between that and F sharp. Like if you were to say, okay, we've got this team, we're doing functional style C sharp and we get the opportunity to change over to F sharp. What, what do you sort of get that you were missing in C sharp? Yeah. Well, you get, again, I think you get the conciseness, you get all the defaults. Like I say, immutability by defaults. The main thing I think would be the, the sum types, the discriminated unions and stuff. To me, that's like a killer feature. But yeah, I mean, like I say, you can you can get all that stuff. That's why I'm saying if you had a bunch of people who really understood function programming, they would actually be more comfortable. It'd be uncomfortable them using C sharp because the eco the eco, the whole just the kind of paradigm of C sharp, even though it has a lot of functional features, it's not a functional language in the sense that you know that there are features, but the features the some of the part you know in a well designed language, the whole is bigger than the sum of the parts. Right, it's not the individual features. It's the fact that all they all combine together. It's not just having lambdas. It's having composition and having, you know, and having type inference. For example, we have you know generics and you have lambdas. Type inference is really useful because you have often have these super complicated signatures. You know, where you have a function where the the inputs and outputs are functions which also have effects as the output. And it's like trying to write a type signature for that is actually kind of complicated. But if you've got type inference, it's like, fine, it'll figure it out for me. And I don't, I, I, you know, I don't have to worry about that kind of stuff. So in C sharp, again, I'd have to be extremely explicit and put every single generic parameter in there in, in all the different places as well. It's like not only in the, in the, it's the inputs and the outputs and also the type parameters and all this stuff has to be, you know, so yeah, it's doable, but it's just a lot of extra work. And so, yeah, I would find that kind of annoying basically if I was, if I was forced to do that style in C sharp, I mean, like I say, in theory, you can do it, but it would be it would be annoying. Yeah, it's possible, but yeah, yeah. Something. Um, I was catching up with an old friend recently who I didn't realize, but who has gotten into programming, and he made this comment that you know he knows that I'm really into functional programming, and he commented that to him, like a hybrid FPOO is, uh, from his perspective, sort of the best of both worlds because you have access to everything. And my response was that I actually like the thing that I like about functional programming the most is the sort of subtractive aspect where it's, it's almost like there's this universe of possible ways to do your program. And if you shrink that universe intentionally and intentionally say, we're going to limit ourselves to these, this subset of techniques, there are certain properties that come out of that that are non-obvious that are really nice. And so when I think about like, oh, well, why don't you just do this style in this sort of bigger language to me the smaller language is itself a selling point because when i say this is the only way of doing these things like i I think result is a good example of this that you gave earlier when you're in c-sharp land or i'm assuming because i have a java background from back in the day but i'm assuming this carries over the typical way that you would handle unusual like error cases is with exceptions that's normal I certainly prefer having tried both result based, like you, you return a different value and then you have, you know, convenience ways to, to handle that and make that, you know, a nice smooth experience. But if I'm in an ecosystem and in a world where exceptions are some, are, are the norm where everybody's using exceptions and this is like a first class, very, you know, 
common thing that people do, I kind of, the fact that both are available means that even if I'm using result, I still probably need to do some defensive, like try catch stuff because the stuff that I'm calling might be throwing exceptions. And I, I still need to think about that and handle it. Whereas if I can do like, uh, let's say everything in F sharp, I'm assuming I actually don't know this about F sharp for sure, but I'm assuming it's at the very least a cultural norm that you don't throw stuff in F sharp. You just return result. If I'm F sharp all the way through with all my libraries and all my you know, dependencies and everything, that just becomes something I don't have to worry about. I'm no longer doing this defensive try catch everywhere. Exactly. And another example is nulls. If you're working, you know, in other languages, nulls are everywhere. And in, in functional programming, you know, nulls might occur in the library, but you basically it would be a code smell to see a null. And I mean, again, I personally like opinionated languages. I like a language that does one thing well. And, you know, the Python people used to have this thing, there's only one way to do it. And as opposed to like, because, I mean, I go back a long way. And back in the day, it was Python versus Perl. And Perl had lots of different ways of doing it. And Python had one way of doing it. And I much preferred Python philosophy to the Perl philosophy of doing it many ways. I think that carries over to functional programming too. And one of my things which actually concerns me a bit is a lot of, as Java and C Sharp start getting all these functional kind of add-ons, it actually makes the whole language harder in a way. It's a bit like when they started having object-oriented COBOL. You know, the language is good at what it does. Don't try and force it into doing something that it's not really designed for. Because you end up, as you say, you end up with lots of different ways of doing the same thing. And actually, I mean, I can give you a concrete example, which is the whole Scala community. So Scala is very interesting because it is, you can do OO in it and you can do very advanced FP, weird FP stuff in it. And there was this huge you know, split in the Scala community between the OO people who just wanted to use it as a better Java and the, the hardcore FP people who were like, yeah, we can do type level programming. And, and it's like, as I understand it, that split still exists. Yeah. And it is. And it's not, it's a shame because that's a good example of where people, the community. And so if I'm trying to maintain Scala code, I have to deal with both kinds of people working on the code base and or, or you end up with you know it's just a mess and uh, yeah exactly if i go into a python code base i'm pretty sure i'm going to expect to get a certain kind of code um, you know if i was writing python i would i'd write it in the same style because that's the way people write it and if i'm in a haskell code base i would expect to write in a haskell style and so on and so forth and um write it in the style actually i actually had a tweet about this because i did actually do a python project last year and um I actually had a tweet about why I wrote my Python code in a Python style as opposed to a functional style. And my analogy was like, if you're a session musician, you know, and you're a musician for hire, you know, you play the music that fits the song. If you're hired to do a country song, you don't do like a metal solo. You know, <laughs> you don't start shredding, yeah. Exactly, you don't start <laughs> shredding in a country song because it's not appropriate for the song. Now, you might be a fantastic shredder, but, you know, you don't do that. And if you're in a jazz, if you come to do a, like a, a jazz, you know, thing, you don't do something else. It's like as a session musician, you're expected to adapt your style to the song you're working in. And I think also as a professional programmer, you adapt your style to the code base that you're working on. If I come into a code base, I try and copy the code that's already in there. I don't actually say, well, my way is better. I'm going to force this stuff, you know, into this code base. So, yeah. And so a language that doesn't allow you, I think that John Carmack had a thing about if you allow something in a language, it will eventually get used or misused by somebody, right? Oh, that's, yeah, uh, I've, I've heard Hiram's Law. Yeah, exactly, Hiram's Law. It's like, so the more you allow, the more, you know, you say you could say, well, just don't do that. But, of course, somebody will do that. And some people actually rely on it. So, yeah, I agree. A language, the smaller the language, the more tighter the language, 
from a language design point of view, I think that's better. So yeah, the fewer things you can do in the language, if you can do few things, then it also, as you, you say, it forces you to like develop a way of doing things. You, you get this compositionality where it's like this feature and this feature, they add together to make this a more impressive thing. And that's the only way you can do it. And if you can't throw exceptions, then that it takes a whole class of things that you can do away. And if you have to deal with exceptions sometimes and results sometimes, and maybe some people use, there's a result class, but there's also an either as well, and you have to handle which one. And then there's an error thing. I mean, the Haskell has a little bit of that problem, I understand it, with all the different ways of, there is still a few ways of doing error handling in Haskell, which is, you know, it's hard for, or strings and text in Haskell. It's, it's like this, you know, the more different ways of doing something, the more, the harder it is to actually be productive. So yeah, definitely limit the number of things you can do. I'm actually reminded of sort of a thought experiment I went through. Like you mentioned, you know, some of the things that you like about F sharp are um, having some types, which also big fan of subtypes and immutability by default. And something that I've heard people bring up is like, well, Rust has immutability by default and subtypes built in uh, and no null either. And so, you know, why do you need functional programming if you've got Rust? And let's, uh, I'm going to try and steal man that argument because, I mean, a, a short answer is, I don't know if you've, you know, done anything with Rust, but like, because of the like lifetimes and stuff like that, Rust is a very complicated language. And I say this being a big fan of Rust. And, and also, I think if anyone's tried to like really seriously do functional programming in Rust, I would go as far as to say it does not work. Like there just comes a point where, trying to do too much with higher order functions. Like I tried to do parser combinators in it. I mean, succeeded, but like it ended up devolving into, I had to rewrite a lot of functions to be macros because the Rust type checker was like, I cannot deal with these types anymore. You need to stop <laughs> doing this. I, I just got an error message that was like, just too many types, too much typing. I <laughs> right. Stop. Exactly. And yeah. the solution was literally take some of my higher order functions and rewrite them to be exactly the same except macros and then the types didn't blow up quite so much and then it was fine so i don't think rust is a good functional programming language but it does have some features that are commonly associated with functional programming which i think is interesting because it's sort of in my mind like if it's true that you can do rust and, and should do rust in an imperative style which is what i would advocate and rust has these features that are historically associated with functional programming languages like some types and maybe your option or whatever instead of null and immutability by default are those things really essential to functional programming and i would say i, I think it's fine if they aren't even if they're associated with it but sort of like what is and that that gets to this this hypothetical which is i've seen people talk about like well okay, Rust per se, because of all the lifetimes and borrow checkers and all this and that, maybe it's not what you'd want to use to replace you know, Java or C Sharp or something. But if you don't care about that level of performance, somebody could make an imperative language that's like Rust, but minus all that stuff and just has a tracing garbage collector instead of those things and is nice and simple and it's still imperative. And then at that point, why would I want functional programming? I think that's exactly what f is. I like to think of it as like a nicer version of Python because you can totally use it in that way. It's very easy to do imperative stuff. And I mean, so I don't think you need a new language, but I mean, yeah, I, I totally agree with you about uh, having some types and, and, and non-null and immutability stuff, because to me, actually, those are huge wins from a programmer, irrelevant of functional programming style versus OO style. So F-sharp is a good example of a language, and I think maybe Scala as well, where you can do all that stuff, and maybe Kotlin is a good example. I don't know. I'm not a Kotlin expert, but you know, you, you can do. You get the garbage collection. You got. It's very good for like business stuff. I totally agree that Rust is not the right tool to use for business things. You want a garbage collection. You don't want to be dealing with all that stuff. 
So uh, I think Rust is very trendy right now, but I mean, we'll see how it goes in the future. But, you know, a language that sits on a standard platform, I actually had a post, you know, F-sharp is the perfect enterprise language, I think, because it's pretty easy to learn and it's um, you don't have to do all this other stuff. I mean, like Haskell, I mean, you know, if you look at the Haskell books, like Printing Hello World, it's like in Chapter 7 of these books. In most books, it's, it's the first page. You can't do it in Haskell until you understand I.O., and you can't understand I/O until you understand monads, and you can't understand monads. And so, you know, so it's a it's a big learning curve just to be able to print something to the screen, you know, to the console. And in F sharp, you can just print stuff to the console. You don't need to have all that stuff. You can just lay, say hello world, and you know that could be the, the first thing you learn. And so, yeah, I do think there are certain benefits if you go the whole hog, the Haskell style hog. But I think for most business applications. The purity is overrated. I, I mean, I personally think purity is overrated. And I think laziness is overrated. But yeah, if you want to be the, if you want the kind of 100% pure, 100% lazy, that definitely forces you into a certain way of programming. But yeah, I mean, you know, a lot of people say, well, if you're not 100% pure and you're not 100% lazy, it's not real functional programming. Oh, I, I don't and, that. I, you know, it's like, <laughs> And I say, I say, well, that's, you know, that's just a certain, again, that's more of an academic thing in terms of just getting stuff done. Sometimes... You know, you just want a basic script way. Like I say, you read from a database, you do some processing, you write it back to a database. You know, it's 20 lines of code. That's all you need. And if you can just write it one line after another and not worry about anything else, that's perfectly effective. Why would you need anything more than that, you know? So, yeah, I do think uh, there's room for a way of working which is not 100% pure, 100% lazy. Because it's hard for a lot of people to get their heads around that. Yeah, so I definitely with you on laziness. I think it's definitely overrated, even though it's not as highly rated as it once was or as hyped as it once was. I still think it's overrated, but I, I am a big fan of purity. And I think part of the reason why it goes back to like what we were talking about earlier to, in the sense of like this subtractive aspect, like my view is that if you're already bought into wanting some sort of async abstraction, like promise or future or whatever, it's not really a significant amount more work in my experience to say, okay, now that's the only way to do it. You have no concept of synchronous effects, which arguably is annoying because now sometimes you want to do an effect and you have to change the type and you have to change the colors type and yada, yada. But on the other hand, it means that everything's consistent because there's also always this problem where if you have an ecosystem where synchronous and asynchronous effects coexist, you either need two versions of everything or else you have some APIs that only support one and not the other. And then whichever one you're using, if it's not available, it's annoying. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I mean, again, if you look, I don't know about Java, but in the, in the .NET world, there are two versions of all the APIs. There's the async and the sync one. It's really, it's just super annoying. So if you just say, okay, let's do everything the async style. And so everything is, all IO is going to be done via promise or future or whatever. It's in my mind, not, any significant amount more work to say, okay, but let's call it task and have it not be evaluated right when you call it. And so at that point, you're down to sort of mutation. And, you know, I, I think there's a performance caveat there with, with mutation and like certain algorithms requiring mutation at runtime to be fast. And, you know, we're working on that with Rock and our sort of opportunistic mutation. But, you know, that aside, again, I appreciate this subtractive aspect of just, you know, it's one less thing to worry about. It's like everything's immutable. There's no question. Is this going to be changed if I give it to this function? It's like, well, no, it can't be. <laughs> so I don't have to worry about that. It's an interesting question whether it's hard coded in the language or whether it's a convention. A convention. Yeah. So, I mean, like in Haskell, you have no choice. But in F sharp and in Scala and in it's an idiom that you say, like, 
avoid trying to keep your functions pure, you know, but there's nothing, the language is not stopping you from doing that if you don't want to. So it's, yeah, it's an interesting discussion about that. Yeah. And, and so I guess uh, bringing it back to this, like, you know, what if you had a, a rust that, you know, uh, didn't have like a garbage collected rust, so to speak in my mind, you know, it's like, well, at that point you're so close to a pure functional language. Like why stop there? Why not subtract those last two things, which is synchronous effects, which split your effect ecosystem in two and just have one consistent effect ecosystem, at which point there's no downside to having everything be a pure function because it, it just sort of already is as long as you just don't have those things run right away, which why would you care if you're chaining them all together anyway? And then at that point, you're down to just like, do you want mutation or not? And, you know, Rust has like a first class mutation keyword. So I can certainly see an argument for saying I want to be able to opt into that for algorithmic performance. But my personal preference is just subtract that too and have one less thing to you know think about. But at the end of the day, I think when people say, you know, I don't need functional programming because if I arrange things, I've, I've stripped out all the OO, I've stripped out all the uh, exceptions and all this other stuff. And we're just down to like immutable values and return types and stuff. And if once I've gotten all of that and we're just dealing with some types and no nulls and immutability by default, why do I need functional programming? It's like, you're 90% of the way there. Why not, <laughs> why not take the last step and get some more guarantees? There is a mental barrier though. I mean, I have a, another talk called Reinventing the Transaction Script which is you know, the, the classic pre-OO transaction script going back to COBOL and, and all the stuff where, you know, again... I don't, I'm not familiar with this. What's a transaction script? So if there's a book by Martin Fowler called Patterns of Enterprise Architecture, which is, um, goes back to 2000. It was a very influential book in the OO community. P-E-A-A, it's called. It's one of those books that everyone used to have on their bookshelf. I don't know. Not anymore because it's you know a bit old-fashioned. But the idea was there was a difference between different kinds of styling your your application so one would be a transaction script which is basically kind of COBOL style or script you know a uh, shell script style and then there would be active records like ruby has and, and uh, so on there'd also be and then you'd have like a full heavy domain driven design where you have a complete domain model and so on and um the transaction script was always considered the worst like COBOL in anything to do with COBOL and shell scripting is like the least you know, it's not sophisticated. It's, it's like one thing after another, you know, blah, blah, blah. It's not, and, um, you know, which is true. It, a lot of these things are very hard to maintain. And if you want to tweak it, you basically copy paste the whole thing and tweak the copy because you can't, you don't, you don't want to touch the original one because it might break, you know. But I do think that with static types, my talk is basically saying if you have static types and you have, you know, some sort of domain modeling, not necessarily full-fledged domain design, but some domain modeling, and you have a pipeline type program, which again is like shell scripting or something, you can get a lot of business functionality very easily. And it, you're not necessarily using monad transformers or anything. You're just basically having a one thing after another. But I would say for business applications, 99% uh, of business applications are basically that. And so you really don't need much more than that. And the mental overhead of having to train somebody on all the complicated stuff. I mean, a lot of people have no problem with pipelines, but they do have a problem with, you know, monad transformers. And it's like, why is one thing easy for people to understand and the other one really hard for people to understand? So I think basic functions and composing functions together is pretty straightforward. And I think people don't have a trouble with that. But when you start getting into abstract, you know, type classes, oh, okay, and then you start having stuff on top of that, you start having kinds and you have and then you have things like, it depends on how abstract do you need to be. I mean, I think, is that abstraction actually necessary? Some, I mean, 
you know, people always like to say, well, abstraction is just a way of being clear on a higher level, you know, and that's the kind of mathematical, that's the mathematical. But I personally, in order to understand the abstraction, there's, you have to have this whole mental, there's a whole bunch of knowledge you have to understand just to do something simple. And it's like, all I want to do is write to the database. Why do I need to understand all this other stuff, you know? This is a great topic. I put a lot of thought into this. And like, so I think there's a couple of questions here. One is how much you need to put in to get something out. And then of course, what are you getting out? Does it justify all that time and effort? My personal view on monad transformers is actually just like, just avoid that. Just don't, don't do that to yourself. Like you don't, you know, and then like the idea is, okay. So on the one hand, you could have anything that's like monadic, you just slam it into IO. Like whether it's uh, you're doing logging IO, you're doing, you know, you want to like read from a state. Actually, I would say if, if you're doing state stuff, just don't do anything monadic. That's just a just don't do that. <laughs> just pass the value in. And if you want to, you know, and then like return another copy of it, it's fine. But also th- there's like random numbers. Like you, you might want to, you know, thread through some, I think that's like the best use case that I've, I've heard of for this. But like, again, I think you can just, just slam it into IO. It's, you know, it's, it's not the end of the world. I mean, another example of making things complicated is something like lenses. So oh boy. You know, if you look at the type thing, I mean, <laughs> but you know, you can see if you understand exactly how lenses work, it's like, oh, this is super powerful. You can do these amazing things that you can't do just by like dotting into records and stuff. And it's like, you know, everyone should learn it because it's super powerful. And it's like, it's true. It is super powerful and you can do amazing things. However, <laughs> should you? <laughs> people have to learn. Exactly. The, the barrier to entry is very high. You have to learn all this stuff in order to use these effectively. And on top of that, other people looking at your codes will not have any idea why what you're doing and why you're doing it. Even functional programming, you know, even Haskell programmers, if someone's really using the lens library heavily, and even though um, and, and a typical Haskell programmer might say, what are all these weird symbols and <laughs> what are they doing? So, you know, there's a, even, even Haskell people, there's already a pretty high barrier entry to using Haskell. There's another level on top of that, which is intimidating. And, I, you know, in some situations it's fine, but I just, I'm all, all about kind of trying to make things simpler and get, getting rid of these barriers, you know. There's actually a funny Easter egg on the um, Elm Packages website. If you go to package.elmlang.org and you type in lens, it <laughs> yeah. pops up a little hint that says, like, you probably don't want lenses. <laughs> <laughs> just don't do it. <laughs> it. It says it more eloquently than I just said it, but that's that's the gist of it. It's interesting because, you know, your talks and my talks and a few other people are all about trying to make functional programming accessible to the average programmer. And I think we are actually, I think one of the reasons why people like our stuff is because we're actually kind of unusual that way. (laughs) I think, you know, if a lot of the talks are assume that this is the best, automatically the best way of doing things. And anyone who doesn't believe that is, is an idiot, you know? Yeah. I mean, my, my, my interest in functional programming, I think like yours is just like, I just want to be able to make software better. Like I want to make software that runs better and I want to be able to maintain it more easily and I want to be able to create it more easily. And when I tried functional programming, I found that it let me do those things. And so I like it and I like things that help me do that, you know, even more. But every aspect of functional programming, like nothing is sacred to me. It's all about, is this helping me program more effectively in, in some dimension? And is it worth the, you know, the amount of effort that I have to put into it? Now I will say, okay, so with, in the cases of like, you know, I'm a big fan of Yagni. You ain't going to need it, you know, like with lenses and monad transformers. But there are a couple of cases that I sort of struggle with. So actually for me, that the biggest one that I have never figured out a great, I don't know, answer to or whatever, but like uh, applicatives. So 
Applicatives are really, really great for two use cases that I'm aware of. One is parsers, especially like command line parsers, because they have this great property. And again, it's like, I'm, I'm after the property. The property is what I want. The, the property is that you can compose together a parser, which is type safe in the sense that it will tell you at compile time if you have written something that doesn't line up with something else. And that's great. Like, you know, if it parses successfully, it's going to give you the expected type and you can compose them together and build up your, like your command line parser and all the types fit together. And that's very nice. Like in contrast, I've used a command line parser in Rust and it's, for lack of a better term, less type safe than that. And there are some cases where everything type checks and yet when I run it, it blows up and says like, oh no, you can't use this thing with that thing. And that's, that's, that's frustrating to me. I'd rather find out about that at compile time. But the downside, oh yeah, and the other thing that Applicative is really nice for is um, concurrent operations. So you can say like, I'm going to run these things and I can run them in parallel. And again, everything type checks. It's not like promise.all where there's this weird like, what's the type of this stuff? I don't know, just like get it right, you know? <laughs> and, and also for validation, I mean, when you have a bunch of things and you need to get all the stuff back in one go, well, then you, you want to do validation in parallel, basically. So anything, to me, anything you're doing stuff in parallel. So yeah, current programming, parsing and, you know, branching and parsing and validating multiple fields at the same time, that kind of thing. So yeah, but I mean, for that purpose, for that purpose, it's very good. Yeah. Oh, yeah. The other nice thing about the command line argument parsing is that also you can not only can you set up this type safe parser, but also you can annotate it with like, okay, here's the help documentation for each of these things right when you're specifying the parser itself. And then because it's an applicative, you can the, the library can traverse the data structure and just generate an entire help thing for you, which is great. So I love all those things. You don't need to use like macros or anything like that. It's just just functions. Great. But the types are weird. Like you look at the types of these, like, of like apply and you're like, what is going on with that? <laughs> and also like, the, you know, correspondingly, if you get, uh, if you mess up and you get an error, like the error messages, I have not seen a compiler do a great job with applicatives when it comes to error messages. So in my mind, these are just like downsides. Now, I think the upsides outweigh it because I don't know of any other way to like get those short of introducing a lot of complexity to the language, like uh, macros or something like that. So some other way of like, dealing with like the parser use case, I don't even think a macro type system would help, honestly, when it came to like concurrency. I, I just don't know of a better way to do it. But like, it's not as approachable as I'd want it to be. The one saving grace, though, is that, especially if you have syntax sugar, and we were working on some syntax sugar for this in Rock, but like, if you can just look at the code and just be like, I don't understand what the types are doing, but I look at it, I see what it's doing. I, like, it's, it looks like a, like a kind of a DSL. I can follow the pattern. If I need to, you know, make one more thing, go in here, I just like copy paste and make a change and it, and it works works you can get a lot of mileage out of that it does break down a little bit when you get like a type mismatch that's confusing and of course you know at some point you like to understand what's going on so you look at the types and you're like i don't understand why or how this works it feels like you know very mysterious but but at the end of the day it's really useful well yeah so in in f sharp uh, the applicatives f sharp has computation expressions which are kind of like the do blocks in Haskell, uh, or, but they've added applicatives in there. So you'd say let something equal and something else, and it'll behind the scenes it will turn that into an applicative and do both in parallel. So that's nice. And I think OCaml has something like that now as well. And uh, I do think that's something Haskell actually doesn't have. Haskell is very Monad centric. So there is an applicative do extension that you can enable, of course, in Haskell. Yeah, it's, everything's a language extension. <laughs> yeah, is it, exactly. But everything's an extension Haskell. Yeah, in terms of <laughs> built into the language. But um, so I think you can make it easy, like you know, do this and do this at the same time. If that's the key, I mean, the keyword in F sharp is and. In my experience is, is you know, 
yeah, you don't have to understand exactly what's going because you know, applicatives are tricky to understand, especially because of the apply. You know, there's multiple ways to define them. Like the mathematical way would be to do it on join, have the join function rather than apply function. But apply is a lot easier from a programming because you can just for lifting things. You know, so I can see why people do that. But um, it's just really hard. I find people have a lot of time understanding applicatives. Yeah, absolutely. I thought join was only for monadic stuff. So join is for monad. I think the one for applicative would be the um, the tuple one. I can't remember what people call it. Just applying something inside the tuple B. But you don't. I, I think I know what you're talking about. Yeah. I can't remember. Yeah, what I mean, the specific weird the... thing is like, yeah. you know, you, you see like the, uh, I'll, I'll use list as an example, even though list applicative is not really a thing, but it's like, it's like a list of a function A to B. And that's like, it's like, wait, why are you, <laughs> why is it, why is it of a function? Yeah. Why do you have the effect around the function rather than the, the values? And yeah, I mean, but it makes sense because it's a partially applied function, but it's, it's hard. It's really hard to understand. It's really, I mean, yeah, I've, I've got a couple of things where I've tried to explain to people and I never really feel happy that it's explained properly, but it's, it's, a, it's a very tricky one. Yeah. And I think I'm much, much more, and I know that this is, maybe one of my most controversial functional programming takes, but I, I think a much milder form of that is currying itself, which is that currying is not nearly as hard to explain as applicatives, I don't think. But it's still, there's a, it's not something that people, generally speaking, in my experience, just get right away. They just look at it and like, oh yeah, got it. You know, I mean, it's it's quite simple conceptually, but it definitely, in my experience, just takes some mental wrangling and like, huh? Like furrowed eyebrows and like, Eventually, people get it, but it you know it, it takes yeah, a while. I think, unfortunately, I do think that the mathematical influence on functional programming. I mean, it was you can see where it came from, but it's probably some of that is hindering the ease of use. So, absolutely, I believe the fact that, uh, like in F sharp, all functions are coded automatically. It does actually make it harder for people sometimes to get. If you're used to the classic way of calling a function with all the parameters in parentheses, you know, it does make it really hard to understand what's going on so i mean i like in, i think in some languages you can like put an underscore for the missing parameter and that seems like a lot easier for people to understand yeah i've seen that in i i think scala and pure yeah scala i think yeah. scala does it and i think yeah you can you're still calling it the way you'd normally call it it's just there's a missing parameter and that's going to be applied come up from somewhere else so but it's uh, it's interesting it's a tough one because yeah i think in terms of um ease of use of learning a new language it's, I mean, it's a kind of annoying to me because and this goes, I've been programming for quite a long time. And when I started programming, there were lots and lots of languages, and it wasn't clear that the C star languages were dominant. So you had COBOL, you had Fortran, you had Lisp, you had Smalltalk, you had Prolog, and then you had Python, and you had Perl. And it wasn't really until Java came along, I think. I mean, there was C and C were kind of bubbling under as well and i think java and then javascript really have dominated the kind of conversation since then with the curly braces and it's like curly braces i don't actually like curly braces i think they were just a waste <laughs> of space however <laughs> if you're designing a language if you look at something like reason ml or you look at um you know typescript or you look at well no, typescript is not a good example but you know people now design languages with curly braces just so they can be compatible so they don't look scary to people, you know. Languages. Yeah, Rust is a prime example. Yeah, yeah actually. Rust. Like you say, Rust is. You know, Rust was based a lot on OCaml, and yet it uses curly braces. And it doesn't use. Uh, you know, I think unfortunately, 
people get used to a certain way of doing things and they won't tolerate any other way of doing it. And I think it's a shame actually, but I, I, I can see why I can see why there's this conflict between ease of use and getting people to accept it and not look too scary versus, you know, the clisp is a classic example. It's like, you know, we have all Elizabeth's full of all these parentheses and it's like, it scares people off because it looks too weird. But, you know, I mean, once you get used to it, it's not actually, the syntax is not normally the main hard thing. So, but I mean, it is, uh, programmers are awfully conservative considering that we're supposed to be in a business where we're, we're learning new things all the time and that the technology is changing every week. And, and, you know, and all these programmers say, yeah, if it doesn't have curly braces, I can't even look at it. I can't, I can't, I can't understand what this is doing. It's like you're willing to learn whole new frameworks and whole new JavaScript libraries, but you're not willing to look at a language that doesn't have a curly brace. That's kind of weird. Anyway, that's my little rant about that. <laughs> I mean, thankfully, you got like Python and Ruby and I guess like Elixir on, on the functional side. Um, it's not just Lisp, you know, that's that's like bucking that trend. And and some of those languages, like Python and Ruby are like, you know, top, are or recently have been like top 10 most popular languages in the world. So, you know, uh, there's I, hope, I, I think. I, I, there is hope, <laughs> but it's just, it's a shame to me that, um, you know, I, in a way, I think there's actually less, I'm very glad to see in the last few years, things like Rust and, and Kotlin and languages come along because for a long time there was a kind of stagnation i think in programming languages back in the 80s and 90s there was all sorts of interesting languages coming along and if you think of all most of the language you know python and and perl and and ruby and c++ and objective c and all that, they all came in there was a big outgrowth of all these interesting languages and then for like 20 years nothing happened which is kind of a shame you know but the last few years it seems to have got more interesting but I do think yeah, uh, I, I put I, Go in that list also. Go, as like a, yeah. yeah, I mean, as a program, I do think it's really good to learn lots of different languages because it really changes the way you think. I think everyone should learn a Lisp. Everyone should learn Smalltalk. Everyone should learn a functional programming language. Everyone should learn like a low-level assembly language. You know, I mean, all these different ways of thinking about solving a problem. And they're all the more different tools you have in your toolbox, the better it is for everybody. And and it is is. A, Sad for me. I mean, everyone wanting to fit everything into Java is a bit just like people wanting to everything to fit into COBOL. It's like, I'm used to COBOL. I want object-oriented COBOL. I want functional COBOL. And it's like, just learn a new, you know, learn a different language. It's never going to be the same as, <laughs> as learning the language, which is designed, that technique was, you know, don't use object-oriented COBOL, use Smalltalk. Don't use functional COBOL, use, you know, Haskell, or whatever. Use the language where it's, the paradigm is, is set up with the language. And and I think bringing it all the way back to the beginning of our conversation, I, I think that's why it's so useful if you have this ability to take an existing code base and just start working in actually another language that can you know talk to the the existing code base. Exactly. Yeah. Absolutely. And and the more the more flexible, I think it's good for everyone. It's good maintenance. It's good for maintenance. It's good for yeah. It's just it's good all around. I think. Yeah. Wow. Great stuff. Uh, anything else we should make sure to talk about before we wrap up? No, I, I mean, I'm happy to go on all sorts of rants, but I, 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 I mean, the only <laughs> thing I would, like I said, the only thing I would encourage anyone listening to do is if you only know one programming language or one paradigm, I mean, you say, well, I know C Sharp and Java. It's like they're the same language and Go is the same language and Python and Ruby, they're all the same language. They all have the same fundamental concept. Go and learn a completely different language that will blow, blow your mind. Go and learn prologue. Go and learn small talk. I think a good way to say that is, um, and I've never really thought about this until just now, but so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make this up off the top of my head. But if you're of the opinion that all programming languages are basically the same, I would challenge you to say that opinion in public and then 
look at what people give as counterexamples and go try to learn one of those languages. Right. Yeah, exactly. Because yeah, I mean, the there's, a, there's a quote <laughs> by, uh, I can't remember who's, but, you know, a language, oh, Alan Perlis, a language that doesn't change the way you think is not worth learning. <laughs> so there you yeah. go. <laughs> Great stuff. All right. And on that note, uh, Scott, thank you so much for joining me. This was great. Uh, happy to do this again anytime because I, I definitely think we could go on for a lot longer. <laughs> we could. <laughs> anyway, yeah, so thanks so much for having me. It's been fun. All right. Yeah, you too. <laughs>